Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Once again, invaded Rickett and Beagle books. The following is what happened in front of a live audience. Although, I don't know how live they were when they left, or even if they left. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised, kiddies. And now, the Wicked Library. Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Wicked Library Halloween Special Live. <laughs> Welcome, large audience, to the second annual Live Wicked Library Show. Sounds like there's so many more people here than there are. You guys are great. It's awesome. So we're going to do a few stories tonight. If time permits, we do have a little surprise for you. Um... I will be reading the first story. Our good friend Nelson W. Piles, who created the Wicked Library years ago, will be reading the second story. And then Cindy will be reading the third. We'll take a little break. Everybody can calm down and gather, and then we'll do some more. Here's a little moi from Aaron Vleck. Let's give a listen to what happens to these children, kiddies. <laughs> I've never fallen for any of that superstition and weird shit crap. It's just not a good look for a detective. But today, I had to revisit that position. This was supposed to be a nice little hometown Halloween. Pumpkins out front, parents looking on from the sidewalks, and streams of little monsters trolling for candy. That's how it had always been, back into the misty antiquity of my own boyhood. Two years ago, all that changed. I'd been getting my boys ready for bed after our own festivities when my partner called, saying we were needed. I kissed my wife Shelley goodnight and warned her not to eat all the chocolate without me. 
and headed back downtown. At the station, the phones were ringing off the hook. We had missing kids, 13 of them. This wasn't the kind of thing that happened around here. A couple of hours later, though, one of the kids showed up back home, offering some excuse about a party in the woods. By morning, all the kids had been found, asleep in the backyard at a friend's house. Whatever. It was a lot of kids to go missing all at once, but they were all home safe and sound, so we closed the cases and just considered ourselves lucky. Halloween last year rolls around, and it was the same damn thing. Thirteen random kids. No more. No less. All go missing during the big Halloween doings. Everybody goes nuts. But by morning, they're all back home with no foul play or suspicious activity. This year, I was holding my breath, just waiting for the first call to come in. When it did, we were ready and set out to comb the town and the surrounding woods. The town was quiet and the woods were deserted. By midnight, 12 more kids were missing and I was holding my breath. Then around 1.30 a.m., we got a break. Sam Crowder and a bunch of his buddies were searching up at the old high school. They'd seen a light and gone to investigate. What they'd found had sickened them. Seth Meeks was inside, living rough. Meeks was a local boy, gone bad with the meth crowd from Briarton, on the other side of the river. Seth was filthy. His hair and clothes were in tatters, and his eyes were crazed. The patrol was about to move in when they caught a scent that doubled them over, ready to puke. I was almost there when I got the call that Sean Hager and Sarah Jackson had come home safe. Then I got the other call. My luck had run out. My older boy Connor was missing. He'd been home all night, but must have snuck out after his mom went to bed. I floored the car and got to the ruined high school in minutes, dreading the scene that had been described to me. The first thing I saw was Meeks, handcuffed on the ground, his face a bloody mess that matched the bloody mess of Sam Crowder's right hand. Meeks himself was babbling about being taken in the night and weird lights and a bunch of other crazy talk. Moving upstairs... The pounding in my chest damn near knocked me off my feet. Sam had almost beat Meeks to death because of what he saw up there. I was praying that my phone would ring and Shelley would say Connor had come home, that it was all a big mistake. There was a makeshift laboratory of sorts set up in one of the classrooms, but if it was any of Meeks's doing, he had a hell of a lot more of his wits about him than I had given him credit for. There were 13 bodies laid out in a row on the floor, all middle-grade kids. I realized I was crying as I looked over the carnage. They'd all been eviscerated, the body cavities cleaned out, and their faces destroyed beyond recognition. This was all fresh, all tonight's work. I let out a groan, and I thought about the last two Halloweens. What the fuck had been going on here? I went from body to body, bracing myself to find Connor among them. Their bloody costumes had been ripped to shreds. There was so much gore and broken bones. There was just no way to recognize anybody. As if coming out of a daze, I saw Doug Stein, the coroner, examining the bodies alongside me. 
prepping them for the trip downtown. Doug pointed to the end of the line. The thirteenth body in the row wasn't mangled like the others. The face had been ravaged, pretty bad, but the body hadn't been gutted. Stein thought maybe Crowder and his pals had interrupted Meeks at his work. Over there, Doug said, pointing at the pile covered by a tarp. More bodies, a bunch of them. A year older, I'd say, maybe two. I felt my fists ball up. I'd never seen such horror, not in all my years. Somewhere downstairs, Seth was screaming his head off about being innocent and just stumbling over all this. I went down to talk to them, but he was half gone. Guilt, fear, or just meth craziness, I couldn't tell. He was babbling about dead kids getting up and walking around, and then he was mumbling about Sigourney Weaver and people busting wide open. I told them to put a gag on Meeks and get him downtown. I took one last look at the scene, praying there'd be nothing of Connor's in any of this mess. Then I followed the last of the guys out and headed home to my wife, who I knew would be as crazy as Meeks by now with worry. It was dawn when I reached the house. As soon as I walked in the door, I heard a scream and took the stairs three at a time. Shelley had found Connor asleep in his bed. My boy looked kind of sheepish and admitted he'd snuck out to go to one of his friends' house for a party because the kid's folks were gone. They'd raided the old man's liquor cabinet and ended up passed out. Connor had snuck back in through his bedroom window not long before I got there. That's what he said. It was hard to be relieved whenever I still had the bodies of 13 kids and a lot of terrified parents waiting for their children's bodies to be identified. That's when the calls started coming. All the kids had come home safe, just like last year, just like the year before. But we still had 13 bodies. And that's when the call from the coroner came, telling me to get down there ASAP. When I finally saw Doug Stein's face in his lap, it was pale as a sheet. He showed me the 13th body, the one that had been left sort of intact. It was ripped open now like the others, and a pool of blood smeared across the floor. Doug's whole body was shaking like a man in panic. As soon as I got them back here, he said, his voice a hoarse whisper. The abdominal cavity of this one ruptured. I could see three white casings of some kind inside. It filled up the whole cavity. I pulled one out, put it on the examination table, and it ruptured too. This God is my witness. I know what I saw, and my assistant saw it too. It was a perfect miniature of a boy. Only, geez, I, I don't know, like a doll or something. It was hideous. The thing started moving and growing. I swear it was only a foot long at first, and then, oh man, I'm telling you, just minutes later it was grown to full size. I'd have called you right away, but things were pretty crazy around here. He wiped his mouth on his sleeve and his lips curled away from his teeth in disgust. Over there, he barked with a grimace and a jerk of his head towards the glass door with his name on it. In my office. I walked over and looked through the glass window. Corpse 13, or rather what had been growing inside of it, 
was sitting there naked in a chair, just staring out the window. I realized that whatever had been growing in those other 12 bodies had already popped out and were already, well, headed somewhere. I glanced back at Doug, but he just shrugged as two armed officers stood looking on, sidearms drawn and on the ready. From somewhere I heard Doug yell, Burn those other two casings in the body! Stat! But all I saw when I looked back into Doug's office was my boy Connor. Two points to whoever figures out what the theme is before we tell you at the end of the night. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's always a part of these stories. But there is actually something a little more subtle. So the next story we have will be read by Nelson W. Piles, the creator of the Wicked Library. So Yay! Here's a story from one of my personal favorites, Lydia Beaver coming to play for us in the Halloween special. Always a pleasure to have you, Lydia. <laughs> Everyone having fun so far? You have fun adjusting this microphone and then have watching Cindy have fun adjusting it back. A million years ago, during season two, uh, two things happened to the Wicked Library that kind of really gave it some teeth. Uh, one was the addition of Maddie Von Stark, who is in uh, currently in the hospital at the moment. And uh, all our best to you, Mads. Um, she began doing artwork for the remainder of my tenure as host of the Wicked Library. The other thing that gave it teeth was the first story from author Lydia Peaver who was a Canadian author. She has a fantastic novel called Night Face, um, which is probably one of the best vampire books I've read in at least the last decade. It's fantastic. It's brutal. It's scary. Decidedly Canadian. And uh, <laughs> whatever that means to you. And Lydia became one of... Uh, she became a good friend and she became one of my favorite writers, period. And I was really, uh, really glad to hear from Mr. Foydick today to come down and read a story. So I said yes. And here we go. This story is called The Ringer. Lucas sat across from his twin on a duplicate park bench, mirrored by a path that ran between them. He didn't make direct eye contact, since they hadn't met, but Lucas had been watching the man live a life that was not his own. That man across from him was a thief and a liar. Perfect house, best car and dream job. It was all supposed to belong to Lucas, and his twin knew it. Why else would he shoot furtive glances up and down the street each morning on his way out, looking and waiting for someone to figure it out, someone to take it all away? On his way in at night, why did he clutch his keys before even leaving the car and skirt head down to the front door? 
He knew he'd been noticed. He knew that front door wasn't his. And here was Lucas, threadbare clothes and goodwill shoes, watching. That's why the man on the park bench across from him would not look up. Later, he'd taken up a roost, not three doors down. Bolt, sure, but so was his twin. Klaus Ensrit. It was a clever move on his doppelganger's part to try and throw others off with that clever name, but it was the first thing that tipped Lucas off. Seeing that name on discarded mail in the recycling bin one morning, who wouldn't know at a glance it was an anagram of his own name, Lucas Winters. He'd been trying to figure out which house used to belong to him, and being forced to scrounge as he was, collecting bottles for return, he'd been killing two birds— as it were outside of the house, he was sure was his when he saw it. Looking up in the dawn light, his eyes traced the now too familiar silhouette of the house he used to live in. When the car he used to drive suddenly chirped to life and the front door opened, he knew without a doubt. They looked exactly alike. Sure, Lucas's hair had grown wild, but how was he expected to afford a cut and shave? let alone clothes that weren't from a donation bin when his livelihood had been stolen by this imposter. Klaus stood still on the doorstep with the late October chill freezing between them and their eyes locked. He'd looked terrified, with good reason. That mist from his lungs may as well have been stolen too. The next night, Lucas was the one in a terrible disguise. A trashed rainbow wig with red lipstick nose. He'd cut a hole just big enough to slip his head through a hideous red and white striped bedsheet picked from the trash. With many elastics, he secured it into a puffy, weird clown outfit. Checking his handiwork in a neighbor's plate glass window, even he was impressed. With the wig on and a handful of ground-up sidewalk chalk packed onto his face, his Halloween costume was complete. It wouldn't have worked to blend in with kids as he looked like a monster or a crazy person, but with the low light of the front door alcove, he'd have that moment to push past the phony Klaus and into his rightful home. Then they could talk. Waiting for the right time wasn't hard. Though he hadn't expected this, the faker was handing out candy to kids like he owned the place. Lucas supposed it would raise too many suspicions if he'd acted like he lived there and never mingled. The neighbors would have eventually caught on. Maybe one of them would have stopped Lucas on the street, letting him know that guy, that horrible clone, had stolen his life. He was living in Lucas's house. He was driving Lucas's car, taken over his job, wore his clothes, drank his water out of his taps, and was stealing the air directly out of his lungs. Their lungs could very well be next. Once it was dark... Lucas walked up to his front door and knocked. Then they stood face to face, mirrored by the threshold between them. That counterfeit held Halloween candy in a bowl Lucas was sure he'd bought himself. Wearing jeans only for weekends, with a work shirt from the day just passed. He'd stolen everything, including habits. Anger took over, getting the better of him. Pushing Klaus back hard with a hand on each shoulder, Lucas bolted the man backward. Eventually, he tripped up over the bottom stair leading to the second story. Lucas had always worried about tripping over that stair, and the irony made him howl with laughter. He started to yell, but could not pick words. 
What came out was an unintelligible avalanche of demands and accusations. The puppet fought back, pushing, scratching, snatching the wig from Lucas's head. Then they froze. The recognition seeped in. The first and last word Lucas ever heard from the lips that were really, truly his own lips was drowned out in a swarm of rage. Before he could stop himself, the double's throat was in his hands. He squeezed and slammed the head backward, taking those stolen breaths back. He breathed, seething, sucking in that air. It wasn't working. The twin was fighting back. Sluggish throws, but fighting back all the same. Like he was trying to keep all the air to himself. Both of them were weakened after so many minutes locked between lungfuls of precious air. He needed something to block the flow. Choking was too close. With his hands on the other man, he could feel his own throat closing every time they tightened. It needed to be done with something else that was neither he nor them. And all around lay the candy. Little clear plastic packages of gummy lifesavers. By the handful, Lucas crammed fistfuls into the mouth of Klaus as he tried to gulp a breath. Probably trying to scream, he got a windpipe full of plastic instead. Lucas pinned the clone's arms between their bodies by the wrists. With one handful after handful, he scrabbled around the floor, scooping up as many candies as he could. Some packages broke open as they were stuffed tight past gnashing teeth, so spit blood and cherry-scented sugar soon coated his hand to the elbow. He squeezed his own eyes shut as those below him bulged and strained along with the lips that split and throat that grew bloated. Seeing the shape of his own fist under the flesh of the man's cheek sent his eyes closed again. Feeling resistance in the throat, he pushed the soft red gumdrops down with his fingertips. A crunch under the crackle of cellophane and he could force another handful down. He only opened his eyes a couple of more times. After a while, when Klaus was finally dead and all the candy was gone, Lucas found he could finally breathe properly again. Closing the front door, he welcomed himself home. Thank you. a lovely story about parenting from our own Gwendolyn Keist. This will get you feeling good all over. (laughs) All over hell, that is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I was so excited to be able to read this. (laughs) One Wish for the Wishing Well by Gwendolyn Keist One of my favorites (laughs) The wrong child slithered from Jenny's womb Sighing, the new mother told the doctors They'd made a mistake Put that one back, she said Waving to the wailing form wrapped in pink And exchange it for another But everyone smiled their tight smiles and assured Jenny the creature she'd birthed was good enough. Beautiful and alive, and most importantly, hers. 
All the proper parts were there, they claimed. Eyes, ears, arms, legs. It was a most passable baby. Of course, her husband loved it instantly, holding the squirming carcass above him, snapping pictures to show the grandparents, giving it the name Jenny had picked out long ago, back when she was asking, praying, wishing for a child. She's perfect, he said, and Jenny bit her lip until it bled to keep herself from arguing. They drove home from the hospital as a family, watercolor shapes of empty kiddie pools and abandoned lemonade stands bleeding past the car windows. Summer was almost over, fading like a blurry reflection in a mud puddle. In the back seat, the smudge of a child cooed and babbled in her plastic cocoon, a stranger in every way. Eel-like in her thinness, she resembled neither parent a head full of decayed algae draped and matted around strangely blanched cheeks, hair so dark it was green. Don't worry, Jenny's husband said blithely. It's normal what you're feeling. All new mothers feel it. You just need time to adjust. So he gave her time. Every morning at 8.15 exactly, he abandoned her with the child. Jenny fidgeted her withering body blocking the front door. I don't want to be here alone. Her husband kissed her forehead, suddenly a put-upon caretaker instead of a companion. You don't have to stay here, he said. Take her to the playground at the park. As though it could be any better there. The mulch-packed constellation of corkscrew slides and circuitous mazes reeked of sulfur and earth noxious scents that nauseated Jenny, but that wasn't the worst. The worst were all the smug mothers that paraded children past her, children they knew belonged to them. The hordes of offspring hung from monkey bars, glided down fireman poles, laughing and taunting Jenny, a constant reminder of what she lacked. What's your little girl's name? The other mothers asked. Amara, Jenny said without inflection, she's two. Two years old, an eternity wrapped in a minute. Time was different now that Jenny was a mother, her life somersaulting endlessly towards some unknown point. Go play, she whispered to Amara. Eyes bright and hopeful, the girl shuffled to join the other children. They welcomed her at first. But after a game or two, the pigtails and smeared faces expelled her from their braided groups, condemning Amara to a rusted seesaw in the forgotten corner of the playground. The child sat alone, one half of a pastime that needed two. Jenny excused herself from the vulture circle of mothers and took the steel seat opposite her daughter. Gently, she rocked Amara up and down the closest to a cradle they'd ever shared. I don't like it here, the girl said, her features shimmering in the naked sunlight, watery blue eyes that hadn't changed since birth, lips a pale pink, the same shade as the dead. Everything about her was somehow strident and misplaced. 
Was that what the other children noticed, the reason they ousted her from their nothing clicks? No, Jenny thought. Only a mother could see it. After they tired of the seesaw, she escorted Amara from the crowds, the two of them walking in silence along the octopus arms that stretched in every direction from the playground. It was summer again, and last year's leaves crackled beneath their feet. Which way? Jenny asked when they came to a fork, and the child pointed to an overgrown trail. They could sense something was there before they saw it. Jenny wanted to turn back, but whatever was waiting for them wouldn't let her. The path Amara had chosen ended abruptly, and they found themselves standing in front of a cracked stone fountain. Pieces of aged granite crumbled toward them like a portent to stay away, but they crept closer. A wide basin overflowed with sour rainwater that stank of old country ponds and backed-up sewer grates. Amara shrieked at the fearsome display, equal parts terror and glee, her petite hands clamoring toward the brown-blanketed water. It's a wishing well, Jenny told her. But it was too shallow for a well. Wells had no bottom, at least no bottom you could see. This was a fountain, like Jenny had loved since childhood. She used to close her eyes and toss a coin. Afterwards, she searched the depths trying to locate what she had just thrown away. It was a game she always lost, since she couldn't ever be sure which shiny treasure belonged to her. Jenny rummaged through her pockets and uncovered a penny for Amara. Toss it in. The child did as she was told. It was over in an instant. Amara among the coins, face down and floundering, Jenny with her hands stuffed into her mouth, fragments of paralyzed horror splintering across her face. A wish. Without meaning to, Jenny had made a wish. A park guard heard her screams and managed to yank the sodden creature from the fountain. Gagging up mouthfuls of copper, Amara clung to her mother. Still alive. Still a stranger. Thank you. Jenny said, and carried the shivering child home. They didn't diverge from the main path after that. If the fountain had a second chance, Jenny knew it wouldn't fail. But soon, others went there for her. The smiling mothers with children they displayed like exotic jewels took their progeny to the wishing well and gave them to the bitter water. Dusk was their favorite time to make the offering, but the macabre pilgrimage happened any time, day or night. Children in tow, the women might take a jaunt there before lunch, or after supper time, or even in the middle of the night. Whatever time they visited, the ritual was always the same. They proffered their children to the shallow fountain, and for each one lost, the stonework earned a new message. Not mine, the women would scrawl, sometimes in sidewalk chalk, other times in lipstick. Monster. Trespasser. They all had the same story for the police. I was trying to fix things, they said. The fountain told me it would fix things. But they weren't the only ones who could hear the fountain speak. Each day, 
Jenny sensed it drawing her back. It called to her when she was at the playground, her name lilting on the wind. It called to her at home, its snickering shadows amassed in unswept corners. Yet she refused to return. Because she could do nothing else, Jenny thought perhaps another child might set things right. She begged her husband to try again, to right the wrong they'd created, but he always demurred. Let's get used to being parents once before we have another. Rejection after rejection, his body cold to her. Jenny became sick at the sight of him. After all, he was partly to blame. A stronger man, a better man, never would have planted the wrong child inside his wife's body. But a stronger woman never would have birthed it. Her insides should have twisted into Celtic knots to expel the invader, anything to slough it off. She failed. So did he. In the house with shadows that laughed at her, she exiled herself to bed each day her thoughts a feverish and dizzying blur. Jenny found she couldn't remember why she wanted children in the first place. Becoming a mother was her greatest desire, but from where the idea had initially sprung, she could not recall. It must have been a lifetime of little things, a daisy chain originating in childhood with pretty dolls and plastic kitchen sets an instinct persevering through adolescent hormones, and a book of baby names she exchanged among other tittering teen girls. I like Amara, she'd whispered in study halls and over cafeteria tables. No one take that name, Amara. That one's mine. Now, years later, the name was hers, but the child was not. Jenny wept so hard she could never imagine stopping. Amara tugged on her arm. What's wrong, Mommy? When her mother couldn't formulate an answer, the girl curled up on the floor next to the bed and fell asleep. Each afternoon when her husband returned from work, Jenny went jogging. Baggy gray workout clothes limp against her body, the June heat searing through her. She hated every moment, but she needed an excuse to visit the park, alone. Down the twisting path and across the divots and worn pavement, the fountain rose lazily in the distance as if caught off guard and forced to construct itself on demand. It hadn't changed since Jenny last visited, but the landscape around it had. Leaned against the stonework was a drooping memorial erected from torn cardboard and paper spit from a printer that was running out of toner. Water, either from the summer rains or the derelict fountain, had warped and tainted what was meant as an homage and a warning. Children are a blessing, a crooked, blocky message spelled out across the top. The whole display more closely resembled a failed science fair project from a middling student than a sacred monument in honor of the lost. Still, the sacrificed were in attendance. The little boys and girls, the same age as Amara, represented in pixelated images and italicized names. Six so far, but the list of drowned grew so quickly 
there was space beneath the latest entry for write-ins. Enough room for at least a dozen more children. Jenny read each name aloud, all the while wondering if she'd caused the deaths or been a catalyst for what was already coming, or if she had nothing to do with it at all. Maybe she too was a victim of the fountain, her would-be drowning of Amara a soft opening for the cataclysm to come. The cardboard memorial swayed back and forth in the wind, keeping time with a melody no one else could hear. She jogged home, a little faster than before, her feet pressing into the concrete as if she could root into the ground and become part of the world rather than outside of it. July ushered in another round of deaths. The city ordered the fountain destroyed, but even once the original stones were chiseled away, the ambitious mothers would bring more, stacking them carefully until they'd reconstructed their altar. The playground at the park emptied. No self-respecting parents wanted to take their offspring so close to death. But Jenny couldn't pull herself away. Besides, she told herself, Amara didn't mind. The child, her glossy hair and two thin pigtails, squealed and raced across the abandoned mulch. The place was hers now. Only one mother and her toddler son joined them. I don't understand it, the woman said as she sat with Jenny on a park bench. Everyone has a rough day. You've had a rough day, haven't you? Jenny nodded, her hands steady in her lap as Amara darted past. Nobody wants to talk about it, the woman continued, but it happens to everyone. It's not worth all this. We do our best, don't we? The little boy waddled from the slide and told his mother he needed to use the restroom. With a half smile, Jenny's fleeting companion excused herself, placidly pushing the stroller down the path. It wasn't until an hour later and the flashing lights arrived, that Jenny realized the woman and her child had departed in the direction of the fountain. Another name yoked to the lost. In August, Amara turned three. The girl had no friends to invite to a party. The fountain proficient at swallowing all her prospects, one by one. Jenny asked her husband what they should do instead to celebrate Under the circumstances, he said, there's no reason to do anything. The neighbors might think reveling between all the funerals is a little gauche. Though she wanted to rail against him in his ignorance and his propriety, Jenny said nothing. Her husband had no place at this birthday party anyhow. It should be her and Amara and no one else. After three false starts, and an all-nighter, Jenny crafted a three-tiered cake adorned with buttercream icing and fondant pieces sliced and shaped into pink dogs and pink cats and pink animals from every forest and kingdom, real or imagined. You've been busy, her husband said in the morning. Jenny kissed him on the forehead, the same spot he always fancied on her. Have a good day at work, she said. Once he departed, she set an immaculate table of presents, all foil-wrapped in curled ribbon, and arrayed the room in streamers and helium balloons. 
Amara came down to a breakfast of smiley-faced pancakes. It's beautiful, Mommy, she said, beaming. Together, they opened a mountain of gifts and ate nothing but cake and ice cream for lunch. For this day, and this day alone, Jenny was perfect. There would never be another occasion like this one, and only she and Amara would ever know about it. It was their secret. It belonged to them. When the balloons had plummeted to the floor and all the foil retired to the trash, her husband returned home from work and gobbled down the leftovers. You outdid yourself, he said, a dollop of icing hanging from his lips. He fell asleep early, his gut distended with sugar and cream. Jenny stared at him for a long time before rousing Amara from bed. I have a final present for you, she said. Don't you want to see? The girl rubbed her eyes, elbows flying wildly, casting shadows against the polka dot walls of her bedroom. I'm tired, Mommy. Can it wait until tomorrow? No, baby, it can't. The moment they arrived at the fountain, Amara began to cry. Perhaps she remembered their previous visit, or maybe the fountain divulged its purpose in creaks of stone and whispers of wind. Go home, the girl said. I want to go home. Once again, Jenny said nothing, her face as unmoving as the stone around them. The fountain told her what to do next. The child flailing in her arms, she dipped Amara into the water, a morbid baptism intended to cleanse mother and child alike. The memorial lurched next to them and collapsed on its side. Beneath scribbled names, there was still space on the cardboard. Amara would fit there. Amara, the name Jenny had loved, the child she had desperately wanted. The limp body rose from the water and Jenny gazed into the hollow face. But everything was different. The features had shifted, rearranged to form something new. The change was slight, so slight no one else could have noticed it. Only Jenny could discern the transformation. Only a mother could see the difference. At last, this was her child. Amara, she whispered, peeling pieces of slick hair from the girl's pallid skin. Like a worshiper at an altar, Jenny carefully placed the body on the concrete path next to lipstick messages of monster and intruder. Her hands pressed into the tiny chest, and again and again she forced air through those pale lips. Don't leave me, Jenny cried. Not now. It went on like this forever. Her eternity that spanned mere moments. It didn't matter. Amara was gone. Her child was gone. But water, always defiant and restless, wouldn't settle. It roiled inside the child's lungs, propelling itself back up the throat. Amara retched in Jenny's arms. She returned from the dead. Mommy, she said, her voice gurgling from within. I'm sorry, Jenny said. Baby, I'm so sorry. 
they sat together, embraced as mother and child for the first time. A guard found them there on the pavement, drenched and heaving. He guessed what had happened. Jenny didn't argue. They took Amara away in September. Jenny's husband had refused to believe what the guard and the police and the court said, but faced with choosing his wife or child, he opted for the latter. Jenny watched her daughter rest that tiny face against the back seat window, the fogged glass mashing her green hair into those cheeks. Those cheeks? Those beautiful cheeks. Amara didn't understand why she was leaving, only it was the best this way. Goodbye, the child mouthed, but Jenny couldn't hear the words as the car backfired and pulled away. Summer, at last, was over. The remnants of the makeshift fountain remained suspended indefinitely at the end of the abandoned trail. The town was too superstitious to disassemble it, convinced one wayward stone could set the drownings into motion again. Though its call had dampened to a distant echo, Jenny still went there. She visited now, clad in the same gray workout clothes, because she had nowhere else to go. The inscriptions from the mothers had washed away, but the cardboard monument remained, its saturated edges dissolving into the concrete path. With eyes opened, Jenny tossed a coin into the water. Then, in her best cursive handwriting, she added Amara to the bottom of the list. Amara. Jenny remembered the entry for her daughter's name in that dog-eared baby book from high school. Amara. Female. Eternal. Eternal. Infinity. The beginning and the end. Her girl. Her little girl. She left the fountain as it was and jogged home to where even the shadows had nothing left to say. So it always takes extra courage to read with the author in the room, right? So on that, um, we're going to take a little break. Hi, this is Nelson Piles from Society 13 and the creator of The Wicked Library. Dan Foydick, the current host and producer of The Wicked Library, has started a Patreon campaign with a lot of great perks for those of you who want to keep the show alive and, most of all, free. It's an expensive endeavor to keep a podcast like The Wicked Library up and running. Website costs, equipment, storage for all of the episodes. It takes a lot of money to keep a show like this free for all of you. And besides that... Think of the librarian. Yeah, the poor soul. Imagine if he had to go get a job somewhere else. Hey, new guy! Come here, we gotta complain! Hello, kid. Uh, I mean, Steve. This guy ordered chicken fingers. What the hell are these? Oh, chicken fingers. I thought you said children's fingers. I always have a few of those on hand. Get it? <laughs> oh, you're fired. Oh, 
Oh well, guess it's back to the DMV. <laughs> and stop laughing like that, it's spooky. Promise? So, if you want to help your favorite podcast, and especially to keep the librarian off the streets, go to www.patreon.com backslash wicked library. And thank you for your support. How many choices do you make in a day? In a year? In a lifetime? How many really matter in the end? Do you agonize over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift, in this place where all things are possible, your choice matters. Your choices require sacrifice. Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to the lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now iHeartRadio. So welcome back to the second half of our show. We're going to start off with something a little more upbeat. Since the last one was just, it was well written, but sad at the end, right? That's what horror is supposed to be. Good job, Gwendolyn. <laughs> That's because it's fun to hear someone else read your story really well. No, that would be fun. That would have been real. That would have been extra creepy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I. That's what I, we, were, we were practicing the other night. I was like, just look at your kids the whole time when you're reading this. That'll be extra creepy. Here's a story about obsession from Brooklyn Wara. Let's all talk about replacements, shall we? <laughs> The Requisition of Grammy Digmarrow. Granny Digmarrow had lived off River Rat Road in her ramshackle, rambling house for as long as anyone in town could remember. Indeed, she had been one of the first residents, the elders could tell you, and was old as the day is long. Why, her hair was as white as those snow caps yonder. Even when I was a boy now on 60 years ago, an old man would tell you, just before he spit in the dirt at your feet. And meaner than a bear shot in the ass. While the old woman had been said to have come to the village with a husband, he had vanished at some point early on, spawning all varieties of rumors. And Grammy Digmarrow had finished the construction of her home with her own bare hands. The erection of the house never did seem to be complete, however, and Grammy could often be seen atop its roof in her knee-high rubber boots and house coat, nailing down this or that. Truly, the house seemed to bow out, fit to burst at the seams with the accumulation of junk Grammy affectionately referred to as her collection. Strung from the eaves of the house was an assortment of Dolls' heads, multicolored holiday lights, giant plastic spiders, hubcaps, birdhouses, wind chimes, dusty bottles, any manner of things. 
blowing in the ocean breeze and creating a cacophony of sound that could be heard for miles around. On any given weekend, she could be seen driving around in her jalopy of a car that seemed to be fashioned together itself from random parts and held together by sheer hope as she perused the local yard sales and flea markets for more items to add to her indiscriminate heat. Her constant companion over the last decade, some would say too, was an ancient one-eyed cat she called Princess, who was as nasty as a snake and matted all over in all the places she still had fur. Goddamn cat gives me the willies just to look at, old-timers would say. For even though Grammy took the sinister creature with her everywhere, everyone in town knew that the thing had lived with Martha Oli and had been found wild and skittish two weeks after Martha's death, upon which time the wretched beast had promptly and wholly eaten the old deer's face. It was on such a Sunday shopping outing that Grammy Digmarrow, Princess the Cat in tow, found the long white satin opera gloves. Now, It is important to know that the townsfolk had all held a meeting just a fortnight before the aforementioned Sunday and had voted unanimously to give Grammy an ultimatum. Clean up the unsightly mess or have it torn down. The postman complained of nearly losing a foot and a rabbit trap when delivering the mail. Another neighbor complained that her son had lost several soccer balls over the fence, which were never returned. Several people pointed out that every year at the town's anniversary festival, anyone who ate the pie Grammy Digmarrow brought for the contest became violently ill. For the concoction of canned fruit she used was expired and sour, probably dating back decades. When they had come to give her the notice, signed and validated by a county judge, Grammy had waved around her double-gauge shotgun firing it into the air and chasing the frightened rabble through the maze of trinkets and trash of the yard until they disappeared in a plume of dust, some of them hanging on to the tailgate of the pickup truck they'd arrived in. The notice stood firm, though, and the date of the judgment loomed near. And, sincerely, the horde was sure to collapse if even one more item was brought into the house. But Grammy Digmarrow, Miser and glutton that she was could not tear her own eyes or her heart from those luxurious opera gloves and appeared to be in a sort of daze when she snapped open her pocketbook to pay for the newfound treasure. Isn't that a lovely feel, princess? She cooed to the cat inside her tote, rubbing its face against the fabric of the gloves. Princess hissed. Upon returning home, she immediately donned the long, silky gloves and was immediately transported to a time of her youth, a time no one in town could ever recall, for it had never occurred to anyone who knew her that she had ever been young. But she had, and when she wore those antiquated ballroom accessories, her senses were so bombarded with nostalgia that She truly seemed to be in another place and time. Certainly, she believed that she was. No longer did she see the crumbling, pressurized horde crushing her home around her, but 
a tidy parlor with plastic covers on the furniture that she now continually dusted with an old feather duster. She no longer saw the roaches and vermin that scurried about the mess, but cheerful bluebirds that perched on her shoulder and whistled her a lively tune while she busied herself. She was no longer aware of the piles of rotting and fermented fruits in the corners of what had once been a kitchen, but occupied her time day and night baking pie after pie in her spick-and-span double ovens. Anyone who dared to peer into Grammy Digmarrow's windows, and not many were brave enough since even before the most recent incident with her shotgun, they would have seen the old woman beating at the decrepit furniture with a ratty dish rag, petting six-legged critters that scurried up and down her arms, and ravenously devouring gelatinous goop from dirty pie tins. Princess circled at her feet, sometimes leaving her a dead mouse, which Grammy also gobbled up while the cat watched in seeming amusement at her owner's mental deterioration. It was some days into our delusion that Grammy first noticed the changes that, to any sane person, would have appeared to be symptoms of botulism from eating so many rotten things off the grimy kitchen floor or some other ailment. The first day, she suffered an ache in her hips, elbows, and knees that persisted for hours. By nightfall, her joints protruded at odd angles and... A coarse wooden sheen had arrived, which reminded her of a treasured music box, or 12, lost somewhere in the mass long ago. The only thing to do, thought Grammy Digmarrow, was to clean and polish her joints accordingly, and she set about doing so, first stripping them with turpentine, sanding them down, and then applying a deep wax coat until they shone mahogany when turned this way and that in the light. The following day, she went blind, another symptom of some terrible food sickness anyone could have told her, but Grammy was able to remedy the situation by removing her own impotent eyes and replacing them with a fine cobalt blue set from one of the broken skulls of her many porcelain dolls lying around. Afterward, she admired her own reflection for hours in a foggy old mirror, even donning a wig of hair she'd fashioned from the same doll's head. Stroking her new synthetic hair with her gloved hands, posing her hands under her chin like the models in cold cream ads in her magazines, demurely batting her long, horsehair eyelashes at her own reflection. In the final days of her transformation, Grammy Digmarrow spent innumerable hours slowly peeling away the papery layers of her own skin and watching them flutter to the floor, On each strip, each bloody bit, a poem written by an old lover, a snippet of a song of her youth, the notes to a waltz she had once danced to. To be sure, even her own organs and innards, her veins seemed to hum with the music of a hundred violins, the crescendo building with each shred she carefully flayed, first with her own hands, still shrouded in that delightful satin, and later with a paring knife. By the time the village residents had become concerned, after Grammy had failed to show up for several Sunday yard sales and the annual town festival, she had been dead for several weeks. 
She had died, skinned alive by her own hands. They never were, due to the bloating, able to remove those satin opera gloves. Eyeless and jaundiced with Princess Purring, bloody-faced and crimson pod, fat and sleepy at her feet. You can read that one to your kids tonight if you like. Here's a happy little story about possession. And you know how much I like possession, kiddies. This one's by John Grills, the creator of the Small Town Horror Podcast. Let's wrap our ears around this one, shall we? <laughs> Penance. A black town car sits idling at the curb. The rain falls heavy and loud on the roof. No music plays, just the hum of the engine and the sound of the heater going inside. There sits a man, a tired man. Sweat forms on his brow from the heat. The windows begin to fog up. Inside the building on the third floor of the middle-income apartment complex, five people stand around a bed. A priest, a mother, a father, a brother, and the driver of the car, himself a deacon. They stare down at the girl on the bed. She is dressed in an outfit she wore to school. It is torn in places. Her hands and wrists are bound as she squirms against them. She screams out in terror. She screams out in pain. She screams out in anger. The five of them stand there in silence before the priest finally motions to the driver, who leaves the room. Outside, the rain has not let up. It continues to pour as if by severe intent. The air is freezing compared to the heat heat inside the car. The man inside wipes at his brow before glancing over to his right. He doesn't stare. He knows better now. He sits there and waits as the rain drums on the car. The knock on the window is almost inaudible against the sound of the downpour. The shadow on the other side of the fogged glass is hunched over, as if trying to hide from the rain. He opens the door and steps quickly to the side as the two passengers step out into the rain and warmth billows out of the car, wisps of steam rising into the air. The two enter the apartment, but don't say a word. No mention of where to go, they just move. Without a single wrong turn, they find the bed with the priest and the family and the squirming child. The four look up at the new people, and the priest ushers the family from the room, closing the door behind him before looking at the man. The priest is old, nearly 70 and no stranger to the scene. The man is younger not even 40 years old, and a non-believer. He can never be a believer. The other, small, the same size as the girl, wears a black hooded sweatshirt and approaches the bed. The girl on the bed lashes out, fighting against the restraints, and yells nonsensically. The black hood is pulled back, and there stands another girl, appearing to be no more than 10 years old. For just a moment, the girl on the bed continues to struggle until she finds the gaze of the girl in black. And she stops. Her eyes fill with confusion, then terror, then tears as she pleads forgiveness. The girl in black looks to the non-believer and shakes her head. 
The man, in turn, looks at the priest with a look of frustration and annoyance. The three of them leave the room without another word and close the door behind them. The girl on the bed still bound, still pleading for forgiveness. It is the girl's father who steps forward. Will will she be all right? He asks the priest. The man and the girl, her hood pulled up once again, leave the apartment. The old priest sighs. Yes, she'll be fine. You can remove her restraints. The family cries tears of joy. The old priest stands silently and watches. Outside, the car still idles. The driver stands huddled under the apartment awning, smoking a cigarette as the rain falls around him. The priest steps out of the building and looks at the car, then the driver. He's not in there, the driver says, puffing the rest of the cigarette down to the butt before pulling out another and lighting it with shaking hands. He went in there. The driver points his thumb to the bar a few doors down. The neon signs in the window announce beer and open. Inside, the younger man sits at the bar, hunched over a half-empty mug of beer and an empty shot glass, turned upside down on the bar. The old priest sighs and walks up to the bar. We still have a lot of work to do tonight. I hate Halloween, the man says. That doesn't change our duty, the priest says. Remind me what that is again? The priest stands in silence. Yeah. The man stands and finishes the rest of his beer before walking back out to the car. Five more homes. Nothing. An insatiable hunger that the man watches for. Fears. The girl shows no signs of life. The cycle remains constant. Drive. Sit. Wait. Reveal the lie. Repeat. It is at the sixth house, near three in the morning, the man, the girl, the priest, and the family, all surrounding the bed, that something is dissimilar to the previous stops. As the priest motions for the family to leave the room, there is something else. Something different. This time, when the child, a young man not old enough to buy cigarettes, starts to scream, it is not an apology. It is hate. In turn, the girl does not turn to the man. She does not shake her head. She keeps staring. The girl takes a step closer. The boy's screams are extinguished in a flurry of bloodlust and gluttony. Her appetite is satisfied. For now. The man and the girl leave the now empty room. The girl continues into the hall and back to the car. But the man holds back. He watches the priest consoling the parents as they clutch at rosaries, surrounded by crucifixes, reciting passages of an arcane text to try and find some sort of solace in the moment, a solace that they never will find. The man's daughter has extinguished their son, what used to be their son, now just a means of satisfaction for a tireless hunger. The man stands there and watches them. He goes back into the boy's room and looks around. It is just a room, just a boy's room. There is a small notebook on the nightstand. The man reads the last entry, 
and closes the journal, tucking it into a coat before walking back to the door. There he sits and looks at the girl for just a moment. He knows her hunger will never be satisfied. He knows he will never rest again. He is afraid. Here's a poem by Immortal Alexander. It's called Sleep. Of course, none of you will be getting any sleep anytime soon. <laughs> sleep. Deep in the darkest place, there is no sleep. No rest nor ease of mind. No rest. No dreams of clouds or fantastic places. No rest. Now I only dream of bad things, memories that are not my own. Not me. Not me in my dreams, only a stranger. Someone stranger than me. A duality that reaches for love but claws at it with reckless abandon. An animal in a cage not of his making who holds the key to his own cell. A cage with no walls, yet a prison still it makes. A shadow me split into many halves. A shadow me that creeps in from the dark into the waking world. It crawls and shouts vile words at the world around it. Makes me feel things that I immediately regret. Just... Think, think and hold on to me, myself, and the very core of who I am. There is a light wanting to spill out like water from a fountain. I feel the light, but the dark traces what it wants of me, with sharp claws making sounds like nails on a chalkboard. Is it too late? The grin is already on my face, and the evil words spill out with sharp points. This is not me. I repeat, ad nauseum. This is not me. This is not me. This is not me. So, everybody sleep well. Thank you for listening to the Wicked Library's Halloween special. We've done seven so far. Who knows how many more we have left in us. Probably enough to last you a slow eternity. <laughs> this is your librarian. Happy Halloween, kitties! <laughs> The Wicked Library is created and shared for free, but there are costs involved in its production. The Wicked Library now has a Patreon account. Head on over to thewickedlibrary.com for more details and to support the show you love. We really do count on your support in order to make the show possible. The Wicked Library is sponsored by the Legends Myths and Whiskey Podcast, brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers. They bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. You can, of course, also find them in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. 
They also have a production of Beowulf, fully scored with music by someone those who are fans of the Wicked Library would be familiar with, Nico Viteze. Find links in the show notes or head on over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com to find out more. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about the great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. And big thanks to Rode for helping us make this show possible. Complete show notes, including credits for music, art, story, and narration can be found at thewickedlibrary.com by clicking on the appropriate episode number. You can also find a link to our Twitter account, our Facebook page, and a link to rate and review the show in iTunes. Reviews mean a lot to us. Please let us know what you think of the show. 